Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Welcome everyone. Sorry to do this to you all. I really did want to start this tale out in the Mojave Desert, following a magic man and his usurper. One is chanting tribally to the god Pan, and the other pretending to see spirits, just so he can go home, to the other man's wife. But we'll come back around to those two. The date is July 17th, 1952. The location, the carriage house, which formerly belonged to 1003 Orange Grove, Pasadena. A former stately mansion we'll definitely talk about later. Pasadena was a neighborhood in transition from a millionaire's row of landed estates to a collection of middle-class ranch houses, condos, and apartments. While the locals may have grown accustomed to the hubbub of diggers and graders, rollers and wrecking balls, at 5.08pm the neighborhood would be shocked to attention by a soul-shuddering explosion. At its epicenter, the basement lab in the carriage house, now a wreck of its former self, Two men and a woman, tenants, rushed downstairs surveying the damage and looking for the owner of the property, one Jack Parsons. After rifling through the debris, they found him. Horrifically wounded, he'd lost an arm. The remainder of his limbs were all badly broken. Most of the right side of his face is missing, yet he is still barely alive. An ambulance rushes to the scene, then tears off at breakneck speed with their patient. Parsons is treated at Huntington Memorial Hospital, where he would die 37 minutes after the explosion. Parsons' wife, Marjorie, also known as Candy, couldn't bring herself to view her husband in such a state. She would leave it to a friend to arrange the cremation. When Jack's mother, Ruth, got the news of her son's untimely passing, she took her own life by swallowing a bottle of barbiturates. One may have expected the sudden death of Jack Parsons to bring on a great mourning in the area. He was, after all, a pioneering rocket scientist who helped win the war. Jet planes, missiles, the rockets which would travel to the moon, all owe a massive debt to his genius. Platitudes, however, gave way to gossip about his wildly occult lifestyle and speculations of suicide, or even that he'd been murdered by order of Howard Hughes. Stories began to emerge about the cult living at 1003 Orange Grove, the rituals and wild orgies. The Pasadena Independent would eulogize him thus, quote, John W. Parsons, handsome 37-year-old rocket scientist killed Tuesday in a chemical explosion, was one of the founders of a weird semi-religious cult that flourished here about 10 years ago. Old police reports yesterday pictured the former Caltech professor as a man who led a double existence, a down-to-earth explosives expert who dabbled in intellectual necromancy. Possibly he was trying to reconcile fundamental human urges with the inhuman, Buck Rogers type of innovations that sprang from his test tubes. End quote. John Whiteside Parsons, Jack to his friends, is a largely forgotten figure now, but I think his tale is worth sharing. The next two episodes... Let's discuss the mad world of Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was born Marvel Parsons in 1914 to Ruth and Marvel Parsons Sr. When young, Jack's father would desert the family to join the army 
where he would distinguish himself in battle, move on up the ranks, remarry, and settle down, only to have a sudden nervous breakdown in middle age, following a medical misdiagnosis giving him just a day left to live. From abandonment as a baby to Marvel's institutionalization, the two would meet only once. In his youth, both he and Ruth were joined by Ruth's wealthy parents, who moved up to Pasadena, buying a home on Orange Grove. Jack was a smart and imaginative child. Homeschooled till the age of 12, he read voraciously. He was an especially big fan of Jules Verne, and of all the new Pulp Fiction magazines like the Argosy All Story Weekly and Amazing Stories. And amongst the boys' own adventure tales of cowboys, adventurers, detectives and firemen, the science fiction genre blossomed in these periodicals. Buck Rogers and John Carter of Mars are two examples which were launched in these magazines. Parsons become enamoured with sci-fi, especially anything to do with rockets and travelling to other planets. When he finally entered the system for high school, he struggled. Many of his peers found him odd, mocked him for looking a little effeminate. He made at least one good, lifelong friend of this time, however. Ed Foreman, the mechanically-minded son of an engineer. With Foreman's father's help, two teenagers began making their first rockets together. Now, I should quickly point out that while we take rockets for granted now, a select few companies build rockets powerful enough to put astronauts, cosmonauts, and satellites in space. A handful of nations have caches of deadly intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear tips that could end the world. Any army or large militia might have an array of deadly rockets. Some even have rocket-seeking rockets to shoot those first rockets out of the sky. A jet engine is, to all intents and purposes, a rocket. In the 1920s and 30s, hardly anyone was working on developing rockets. Those who were for the most part, were amateur enthusiasts. Often, like the young Parsons, hobbyists with a love of science fiction. As aforementioned on An Earlier Tales of History and Imagination, Tipu's Tiger, I will leave a link in the notes below, the Chinese had rudimentary rocket-like devices, fireworks which could shoot a bamboo spear at you, and the South Indian Kingdom of Mysore used war rockets in battle. In the wake of the four wars in the latter half of the 18th century, between the English and the Kingdom of Mysore. A number of European armies built and used war rockets. But the technology was discarded. They were wildly unreliable. Other artillery, such as cannons, improved with the greater choice of available materials resulting from the Industrial Revolution. Rockets had their 15 minutes of fame, and they were now so last century. A few serious rocketeers did exist. Nikolai Kabalchik was one such man, writing a treatise which set much of the groundwork for future rocketry. His own work went nowhere in his own time as he was writing his treatise in 1881 while awaiting execution for building the bombs used to kill the Russian Tsar Alexander II. The American Robert Goddard was another serious rocketeer, but he was publicly mocked out of public life as a crank in 1918 by the newspapers for suggesting the rockets could fly out in a vacuum of space. Rocketry really was a brave new frontier in these days. The way was clear for clever autodidacts like Parsons and Foreman. To quickly sum up the rest of Parsons' teenage years, he was suspended from his high school, attended another one where he now fit in much easier, 
He was now seen as a macho bad boy who left his last school after blowing up the toilet blocks, and he went on to a semester of college. His university studies were interrupted, however, in the wake of the stock market crash of 1929. Parsons' grandfather, Walter Whiteside, was left broke, and he died in 1931. His part-time job at the Hercules Powder Company, where he was handling explosives and other chemicals, soon became a full-time role. In the early 1930s, Jack continued to work on making bigger and bigger rockets with foremen outside of work hours and communicating with other rocketeers overseas, including the German VFR. The VFR, which included one Werner von Braun, went suspiciously silent a few years after the Nazis took power in 1933. He also met and fell in love with Helen Northrup at a church dance. The two married in 1935. To make sense of Parsons' life, one could look at the separate elements first and how these elements collided with one another disastrously later. For one, his professional life took off like a rocket in the mid-1930s. The California Institute of Technology would loom large. Caltech had gone from a private college with strong ties to the Universalist Church of America in the 1890s to a teaching hub staffed by, then churning out, some of the USA's brightest minds by Parsons' time. They were well equipped with a great source of expertise. They also had some notable guest speakers. In 1935, Parsons and Foreman attended a public lecture at Caltech by a visiting rocketeer, Eugene Sanger. After the lecture, they got talking to a PhD student named William Belay and pitched their plan to build a liquid-propelled rocket. Belay passed on their invitation to join them, but he did introduce them to another student, Frank Molina, who was very interested in their plans. In 1935, Molina convinced his doctoral advisor, Theodore von Kármán, to let him construct a rocket engine for his doctorate. He would work alongside the two autodidacts, Parsons and Foreman. In the following years, the group gained a lot of attention for their wild, noisy experiments on campus. After one August 1937 experiment went awry, First a chemical spill killed the lawn, then an engine backfire filled the Galset building with hydrogen tetroxide, causing all metal surfaces in the building to rust overnight. They were sent out to experiment in the desert. Around this time they picked up the name the Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad took in several inductees and gained a reputation for their parties. Self-funded. Parsons and Molina wrote a sci-fi movie script they hoped Hollywood would pick up. Hollywood paid no attention whatsoever to their film script. The work of the Suicide Squad, with its loud noises and flame-belching engines, got plenty of attention from the local press, however. As did Parsons himself in 1938. He was called in as an expert witness in an attempted murder by car bombing case. The victim, a private investigator named Harry Raymond, Raymond was working for a group called Civic, and I do go into this at length on um, the previous week's blog post, and was intending to make a Patreon-only bonus episode of this, but it probably pays to mention a little bit as to what was happening. A great deal of corruption had taken place in Los Angeles in the 1930s, in part because LA was hit very hard by the Great Depression. 
there were 300-odd thousand people came in, Okies and Arkies and all the others from other places, as a result of the Dust Bowl, which, again, I won't get into details, but, but check it out. Check out the blog. And the LA Mafia rose like nobody's business through the money made through Prohibition. Well, they pivoted to gambling houses and brothels and uh, over a thousand bookies where you could place a bet across Los Angeles alone. This group, Civic, um, led by a man called Clifford Clinton, well, they really went after the city hall because the mayor of the time, a man called Frank Shaw, was as corrupt as they come and in bed with the mob. Hence the car bombing. Raymond was his private investigator, looking at all the various many, many connections between City Hall, the mob, and in fact the local police. Well, anyway, Jack Parsons, he becomes a respected expert overnight when he is brought in to explain what the bomb was, how it worked. And being a self-educated man, the defense tried to pick holes in him. It didn't work terribly well. He come off looking very well, and that's basically the story. Anyway, saying it yet again, it will be in the liner notes. Go check it out. Also around this time, they had secured some funding from a mysterious Mr. Weld Arnold, and were joined by a Chinese mathematician called Qian Zhusen. In 1938, the Suicide Squad began making commercially viable rocket engines. They were also joined by a Jewish refugee named Sidney Weinbaum. Weinbaum introduced several members of the Suicide Squad to a secret communist organization. Some of the members, like Frank Molina, joined the party. Jack Parsons attended several meetings, ultimately deciding communism wasn't for him. He did find another group at around this time, but he did come to view as a surrogate family. The Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO for short, was an occultist organization centered around sex magic. The K in magic is very intentional and very important to the OTO, apparently. That's M-A-G-I-C-K. Established in the early 1900s, the group was taken over and reorganized by the British occultist Alistair Crowley. Crowley deserves a tale in his own right. At some point, we will do one. What we need to know today is on Crowley's 1913 takeover, the order took on Crowley's tenets of his religion, known as Philema. A very basic summary of Crowley's ethics in regards Philema follows. Their laws can be broken down to 1. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Basically a call to follow one's own path without any restraints. 2. Love is the law. Love under will. Philema is governed largely by love magic, by sex magic. But love is always subservient to pursuing one's will or true mission in life. And three, every man and every woman is a star. In other words, if you follow your true path in life, you're like a star, shining brightly for all to see. As best I can tell, Crowley's beliefs were highly individualistic. They cast off many of the conventions everyday folk felt compelled to follow. Their rituals contain a lot of chanting with roots in earlier hermetic thinkers, much of it not terribly dissimilar to the Eastern traditions people like Helena Blavatsky tapped into. They believed in free love, and that drugs could lift one above other mere mortals, reach higher levels of magic, and get one on their way to their true mission. Crowley's teachings also made a lot of numerology and astrology, and yes, their philosophy feels very Ubermenschy to me, very Nietzsche. 
There's also clear influences to be seen in later groups, but this post's already going to run two episodes. We'll leave that another day. In 1915, Crowley set up the Agape Lodge in California. He later returned to Europe after World War I. In January 1939, Jack and Helen Parsons got an invite by John and Francis Baxter, a gay and lesbian brother-sister duo who had become good friends with the couple, to join them at the Agape Lodge. They went. Jack was intrigued by the evening's proceedings. The group performed Crowley's Gnostic Mass. Afterwards, they mingled with the cult, including their leader, Wilfred Smith. The Parsons regularly attended OTO meetings. Although thoroughly infatuated, it seems, with the group and their beliefs, they would take a little over a year to officially join up. In the meantime, Jack and Helen were joined by Helen's half-sister, Sarah, also known as Betty. Betty was a minor, just 17 years old at the time she moved in, and this does become important later. Also in the meantime, as World War II drew closer for the USA, The Suicide Squad approached the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Army Air Corps Research. If war broke out in the Pacific, the Air Force would suddenly need to land and launch big heavy bombers from very short landing strips on tiny islands. This would be difficult unless they could speed the bombers up. What they needed was a jet propulsion system. The Suicide Squad avoided the word rocket for fear they would be labelled cranks and dismissed. The NAS committee thought they were anything but cranks, and they gave them the funds to develop a prototype jet engine. After several tests run with mixed success, on one test the JATO engine blew up on re-entry, firing shrapnel everywhere. There were a couple of explosions on the ground. One time the test plane itself caught on fire. They eventually made a working model. Having ironed out all the bugs, the Suicide Squad suddenly had thousands of jet engines to make. Caltech was neither willing nor able to set up for industrial production. The Suicide Squad, now incorporated as Aerojet, went it alone. Now a defence contract would come with all kinds of oversight. For one, the Suicide Squad and all those working for them would need security clearances. This meant the Defence Force going over their backgrounds with a fine-toothed comb. The OTO had come to the attention of authorities in February 1939, when Anya Sosieva, a young dancer who had attended an OTO mass, was murdered on the grounds of Los Angeles City College. The OTO bore no responsibility for her killing, but reporters shone a light on the sex cult living in the middle of an everyday neighbourhood. Wilfred Smith was at least afforded airtime to explain their philosophy in masses to the public. Paul Seckler's rampage was a whole other level of bad publicity, however. Paul and Phyllis Seckler were a couple who'd recently joined the OTO, having been recruited by Regina Carl, a long-standing member who was Phyllis's drama teacher. Phyllis would go on to become a high-ranking felomite. Paul who Parsons secured employment for as a security guard at Caltech, would wind up serving a jail sentence. One night in 1942, Paul came out of the mass, possibly high on a bad trip, and convinced he needed to get away from an evil spirit. He hijacked a car at gunpoint from a young couple, and drove round and round the city till he came down again. The connection to Parsons, now high up in the OTO, did come to the attention of authorities. 
Wallace didn't get Parsons expelled from the company, didn't get his um, security revoked. The FBI was now looking closely at Jack Parsons and his sex magic cult. I'm sorry folks, this will be a two-parter. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with part two of Jack Parsons when everything goes mad. See you then. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.